Hello, I'm Ray Reich, founder and CEO of RevOps Squared and host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B SaaS industry thought leaders, executives, and people just like you to discuss what metrics, KPIs, and benchmarks they use to enable better data-driven metrics-informed decisions that accelerate revenue performance and increase enterprise value. Now, on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Today, we are joined by Court Lorenzini, multiple-time company founder and CEO of software and SaaS companies, including DocuSign. Today, we'll be discussing three main areas, the journey of a multiple-time company founder and CEO, Court's story of founding and then leaving DocuSign, and Court's advice for founders who are thinking it might be time to hand over the reins of the company to someone else. Court. Please take a moment to give a brief background overview of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Hey, Ray, my pleasure. So great to hear from you again. And I guess my journey to your microphone started about five years ago, maybe more actually probably when our mutual friend, Sam Lucente, got us together and we realized we had a lot in common. So I was pleased to get your invitation and I'm looking forward to talking about Founder's Journey. Great. Well, tell us a little bit more about your professional journey and specifically what led to you co-founding DocuSign in 2003, I believe. (laughs) Yeah. So, oh my, what led to that? Okay. I'll go relatively smoothly through this. So I guess I started, I always knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And when people ask me about that, it goes to the fact that my family is a family of entrepreneurs. Both of my grandfathers were inventors, one in the food sciences industry, the other one in the oil and gas industry. My dad was a very famous founder and early investor in Silicon Valley. In fact, my father was the person that invented the process for growing single crystal silicon. So he's one of the eight people who is designated as, quote, founding Silicon Valley, literally. So I grew up, I really had it in my genes. So when I was 13 years old, I knew that was what I wanted to do. And I got my first job working in an upholstery store. And surprisingly, I did something at that point in my life that I've always told people was one of the big evolutionary things that I did, which is I started taking observational notes. And Ray, you might remember, do you recall the old college-bound notebooks where they're about five by seven small notebooks that you just used to take notes in college? I hate to say it, but I'm writing one right now. So yes, I do remember that. There you go. All right. So I have stacks and stacks and stacks of those. I used to carry those around with me from the time I was 13 years old, writing down observations of business situations that would come up, sometimes life situations. It wasn't a journal. It was really more my note-taking on seeing how other people handled situations. So if I was doing a job and my boss told me to do something and I handled it a certain way and he or she handled it a certain way, I would write down my observations of that interaction and how it played out. And I would write down ideas of companies I might found or observations in the world. And every six months or so, I would go back and I would read my notebooks from start to finish, meaning all of them from the beginning of time when I started. So imagine now I started at 13. I was doing this all the way through high school, all the way through college. I didn't stop until I was in my 30s. So I have shelves of these binders and I would literally read them all the way from start to finish at least once a year. And what that did for me is it gave me an incredible 
view line to development of concepts and ideas over time. And that was perhaps the most differentiated thing I think I did as a young person. But ultimately, my jobs were, you know, I was able to get a job early before I even graduated high school, working in an engineering department, spent my college years working for a different company as an engineer. And then only a couple of years postgraduate, I graduated with a degree in engineering. I was given an opportunity to go over to Europe to start a venture over there that where I was one of three people. I was in charge of running the operation for an American company in Switzerland. And I was paired up with a guy who was running manufacturing and another guy that was running sales. And we started a company that ultimately was churning out $100 million in business in a matter of a few years over in Neuchatel, Switzerland. And when I got back from Neuchatel, I went to work for Cisco Systems when Cisco was a brand new company relatively early in its life cycle. And I was fortunate enough to work for perhaps the greatest management team I've ever experienced when John Morgridge was leading the company and ultimately gave way to John Chambers. And those guys, I mean, talk about learning at the feet of the masters, man. Those guys are still my heroes to this day. And left there to come to the Northwest to start my first company and built that up, sold it, and then started DocuSign. Well, let's kind of focus in on DocuSign. So was there something in that composition notebook from several years ago that led you to seeing the need for electronic signatures? Or was it something more recent in the 2001, 2002 timeframe that you experienced? Yeah, you know, I'm going to give the full credit for the concept of DocuSign to my co-founder, Tom Gonzer. So the first company I started was an e-commerce company in the mid-90s, and I had my team together. We built that into a pretty decent company and sold it. Along the way, I had hired Tom Gonzer to work as my head of business development. And Tom and I worked together very well for a couple of years, and then he got the itch to go start his own company. So he went off to do that. Now, years have gone by. He probably left, that was called point.com in 98. And now in 2002, early 2003, he called me up. He said, hey, my company, I've stepped down as CEO. I'm on the board, but I've got this piece of technology that my company acquired a few years ago. It was actually some IP. It wasn't really tech. It was IP that I'm thinking of spinning out into a document management company. And I'd love to work with you again. Could we team up on this new venture? And his proposal originally was very broad. And together, we narrowed it down to what became DocuSign because the core IP that his company had acquired and was getting rid of, one of the components was a series of patents on signing documents via the internet. And I thought that was the thing to go after. And he agreed. And therein became sort of the magic that started the company. Wow, what a story. And then you were there at DocuSign as the co-founding CEO for five years. Tell us a little bit about that first five years of experience leading up to you deciding to leave the role of CEO and even leaving (laughs) the company that you helped co-found. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the founder's journey is a fascinating one. And I think if I drill in on DocuSign specifically, in 2003, when Tom and I started that company, our main competition was a fax machine, that and FedEx, right? So you could either send your contracts, fax or FedEx, and those are the ways you got things done. And so we were really competing against, leg, talk about old school legacy stuff. And even though there was a law on the books nationally called the e-sign law, very few people were aware of it, or certainly nobody knew whether an electronic signature 
would legally hold up in a courtroom. So there was a lot of early education in our market. And ultimately, I'm sure you've seen it in all the companies you've talked to and started. When there's education involved, there's friction, right? So in our case, that was absolutely true. And it was a tough slog those first few years. And you know, we built the product and it worked, but convincing companies to adopt it. And you really needed to not only convince the company that was going to buy it from you, but they had to believe that the people they were going to send contracts to were also going to be comfortable using it and feel good that it was legally enforceable and that they would prefer it perhaps over a wedding signature. So there was a lot of early just convincing people, basically. In fact, there's a story I like to tell, Ray, that sidebar on this, but interesting. We were dying to try and find a way to prove to the legal departments of big companies, small companies, whomever, that the actual tool itself was defensible in a courtroom. So we actually had to create, I struggled for a while to figure out what to do. I actually had to create a dummy case in a live courtroom and I had to pay a judge and jurors and an entire courtroom setting to create a case that we formulated in order to demonstrate through a legal process that a signed document would in fact hold up in a courtroom. And this was early days, right? And then you go through stuff like that to try and get your company over the hump. Hey, Court, let me interrupt there because a very similar journey that I had back in the mid-90s when I first joined Netscape and I was responsible for launching the e-commerce portfolio, both B2B and B2C, same experience. I remember going and having conversations with leading publishers like New York Times, Wall Street Journal, leading retailers at the time like JCPenney and even REI. And they looked at me and said, you think people are going to actually read news online or buy a product online and give us a credit card? Are you freaking kidding? And the classic (laughs) entrepreneur's dilemma of establishing product market fit, right? You bet. And so, you know, you love those stories, but you also cringe when you tell them, you're like, oh my God, this is what I had to bend over sideways and backwards to do it. But it's what we do, right? This is sort of the thing. And I'll tell you that that was the first several years. And our first big breakthrough came when the National Association of Realtors, I convinced them not only that it would work, but that it would massively simplify the home buying process for their membership. And the National Association of Realtors is the governing body for all of the state realty associations, basically. And they had a piece of software that we were able to integrate into and give realtors their first taste of an electronic closing or an electronic execution package. And that was the most successful implementation that we did for the first probably seven years of the company. That drove such huge percentage of our revenue because real estate, anyone that's ever bought a house or done anything along those lines understands the complexity, the number of pages, all the signatures, all the changes that have to be managed. And it was just such a fluid process when you could introduce an electronic signature into that. And once they had adopted that and started moving, then we started getting people to assess like, wow, if you can look at a document that's representing the closing on a house that could be hundreds of thousands to multiple millions or tens of millions of dollars, and you believe that that will hold up, well, maybe it's okay for our business, right? So that was really, I think, the prime proof point that got us over the hump. But I think the one that really took us to the top of the heap was when Microsoft agreed to adopt it as a corporate standard. And I'll never forget that I actually got an inbound call. I can't even take credit for getting Microsoft as an outbound. Their head of legal called me up and said, hey, 
I was just in the briefing room and realized that I was listening to a presentation about your company and how you've implemented all these cool Microsoft technologies and it was a legal signing technology. We should be using that here at Microsoft. Why aren't we using that? And that was the beginning of an extraordinary relationship. And from there, not only did he help me promote it within Microsoft across all of their operating divisions and across the world, but he also helped me bring it to other companies and stood as a reference for other companies. And at the end of the day, back in the early 2000s, if Microsoft said it was good and it was good tech and they were using it, that was good enough for pretty much everybody. Yeah, from hard work and preparation to opportunity. And so you established great product market fit with early adopters like the National Association of Realtors and then Microsoft. And then you decided maybe it's time for me to hand the reins over of leading this company to the next stage to someone else. Tell us a little bit about what led to that decision. It had to be yeah. hard. It, you know, it is. It's, it's always interesting how this unfolds. And I think everyone's story at this moment becomes a little different. And I will reaffirm that at this moment in time, we were growing steadily. You know, we were a multi-million dollar company. We were growing, but we were not the rocket ship that VCs want in that moment, right? There, you know, imagine yourself as a venture capitalist, five years into an investment, the company is growing, but you haven't hit what they might assume was a hockey stick. And I will still to this day, I know that that was just basically the market friction we were overcoming. I don't believe it was anything fundamentally flawed in the business, but that they started to get antsy and they were talking to me, how do we accelerate growth? How do we get faster? How do we get bigger faster? And should we be looking for a change here? And I was like, well, I've got it to the point where I'm very happy with the growth. And yes, we could maybe go faster, but I don't think there's a way we can artificially grow quicker. But we agreed that we would discuss the idea of looking into new CEOs. And I have a pretty good sense, Ray, of what I'm good at. And what I'm really, really good at is what I call the phase one development of a company. And I'll describe that in, I look at companies as having three primary phases of growth from the start. Phase one is napped into product market fit. Phase two is rapid growth and phase three is profitability. And some people have skills across all three of those phases. And I'm not saying I don't, I'm just saying I know that I'm the happiest and I'm delivering at the highest level when I'm in phase one. And as you just described, we had at that moment reached product market fit. We were on a growth trajectory that was just literally, let's do more of the same tomorrow. We can drop our costs. We can go faster. We can develop better marketing messages. But at those points in time, I've learned something about myself. And then I learned that at those moments, I'm getting bored and I'm starting to look for other challenges. Because to me, the best part of the journey is the first part where you're dodging and weaving and bobbing and changing and adapting and coming up with new ideas to overcome market challenges. I don't find that same vigor, if you will, in the growth phase, personally, as a leader. And that's something I long ago learned about myself. So after discussion with my board, we said, great, let's see if we can find somebody whose real strength and power is in this next phase. And unfortunately, the first two people that succeeded me did not work out in that context. And it took us until we got Keith Cratch to step into the CEO role from a board role that we really hit the growth phase. And he was a terrific leader through that growth phase. In fact, perhaps the perfect leader. And then he led it off. And then he ultimately took and handed it off to our phase three leader, who's Dan Springer, who I just think the world of. Yeah. And Keith, of course, has done it twice now. He did it early in the internet boom with Ariba as a growth leader, even though he was also the co-founder there. And then with DocuSign. 
Hey, Corey, let me ask you a question, though, because as you and I were talking in, when I invited you to be a guest on the Metrics of Major podcast, we talked about once you decide to hand over the reins, do you stay involved? Are you an advisor in a strategic role or even on the board? And you told me that, no, you thought there was a better way. Can you share that with our listeners? You bet. So I mentioned that I had a company that I'd started prior to DocuSign, and this was a great learning opportunity. That company reached a certain point where also I decided to step down as CEO and bring in a new person to lead through the next phase. And as it turned out, the next phase was ultimately to sell the company, which was fine. But I made a strategic decision in the first company to stay on the board rather than exit. And I realized after not many months of doing that, that that was a major mistake and that my presence in the boardroom was causing a challenge. And the challenge was quite simple to recognize, which was all of the executives, including the CEO, the current CEO, were somebody that either I had hired directly or had helped hire. All of the board members were also people that I had stacked on, you know, I brought to the board. And so when board discussions got challenging. It was a natural reaction of the room to look at me as the founder and rather than to the CEO, who was the current leader. And I felt like that really at a certain level undermined his ability to do the job that I and the rest of the board had asked him to do. And that was not fair to him. So when the situation repeated itself for DocuSign, I immediately knew my best choice was to step out holistically. So my advice to founders is if you end up leaving your company give the new leadership the chance to really make it their own. You've put your stamp on it. Now it's time to give somebody else their chance. And I'm really glad I did that. I think irrespective of the next couple of CEOs not working out, the board functioned great. The team rallied and ultimately proofs in the pudding. Well, Court, I think that really shows that experience can be the best teacher because you had experienced it before and you'd learned your lessons. And number two, you also were self-aware enough to say, hey, what I'm really good at is napkin to product market fit. And this growth phase, even though I can do it, I'm not as passionate about it. So once you stepped out of DocuSign, that didn't stop your entrepreneur spirit. You went on and have <laughs> founded other companies. Tell us a little bit about why you keep going, Court. Well, as I said, I thrive in phase one. So to me, that is lifeblood. I think I was born to do this. And I joke that my prime hobby is learning and honing entrepreneurial skills. And it's what I read about. It's what I think about. It's what I like talking about. And on my spare time, when I did have spare time, even when I was running my own companies, I was tutoring, mentoring, helping other entrepreneurs, trying to figure out their journeys. That to me is what fills me up. That fills my cup, right? Some things fill your cup, some things empty your cup. That is absolutely a cup filler for me. And so starting companies is where I get my energy. And at this stage of my career, even the next thing I plan to do is more formally helping entrepreneurs on their early journey from that napkin phase, right? Where there are very little guideposts. There are few references. You're going with gut instinct. You're trying to find a way to get your business off the ground. And man, I love talking to people in that phase because they are open to listening. They are open to discussing new approaches. And each time I have that conversation, Ray, I am filled up. <laughs> so whether it's starting new companies on my own, yeah, I started two more after DocuSign and, you know, make, and once COVID is passed, I'm, I'll definitely do another one. It's just what makes me happy. 
Well, let me key in on something you said, though, about providing that advice to other entrepreneurs. And I think you used the word formalize it, because one of the things I'm finding on social media, specifically LinkedIn, is so many influencers and thought leaders are providing advice to aspiring entrepreneurs, founders, and even other professionals. And it's just bad advice. So tell me a little bit about the formal structure of how an entrepreneur could find an advisor who really knows what the hell they're talking about. Interesting question. The way I have approached it is to look at what makes businesses fail and therefore how does one change the trajectory or change the statistics of developing successful companies. And After doing lots and lots and lots of research on my own and just observing through all of the advisory sessions I've done over 35, 40 years of working, I came to the conclusion that the two prime things that I could help with, and again, this may not answer your question directly, is that looking at how businesses pressure test their ideas early and how they develop their founding teams. That I think there are a lot of companies that don't do enough of either of those things. They let their team form a little haphazardly via friends or associates or former colleagues without really doing a rigorous thought process of who would be the best partners. And I don't think there's not enough done to rigorously challenge, and I call it trying to kill early ideas. As far as other people's formalization of process, everyone's got their own experiences. And I think for a founder, listening to experience is valuable, but always you're going to take all of that and have to filter it through your own membrane and kind of come up with what works for you. What I will try and accomplish in this next phase of my journey is helping entrepreneurs understand when to trust their instinct and when a process is perhaps better at getting them to the end game. And so when I say formalizing it, it's more a function of looking at the very earliest phases of, man, I'm still noodling my idea. How do I even get it from what's in my head to something that's maybe a business? And then if we can get there, then we start to move into how do you form up that business, take it through its process and get it to something that is a on a maturation cycle. And Court, you said something, and I think it's still, even though everyone talks about it, It's a truly underappreciated way of approaching founding your business. And that's learning from entrepreneurs who have failed. Why businesses fail? I found, I give an example. You talked about convincing a market, right? I was involved in the first generation of marketing automation in, in 1999 through 2002. And it was five years before Marketo, right? And what I found was B2B marketers just weren't quite ready to use the internet as a customer acquisition and lead acquisition model, at least not in considered purchase. So boy, I love that advice. Learn from business failures and pressure test your ideas, pressure test your solution. How do you recommend entrepreneurs go out and pressure test whether it's really the right time for their idea and their product? So I have certain tools that I tend to offer and they sound simple, but they're a little harder to execute. Number one, as I said, I go through the exercise of, okay, I come up with a concept and then I rigorously try and kill it. And by that, I mean, go through every possible failure mode I can come up with and anyone else can come up with and see if I hit that mode, am I going to get through it? And an interesting trick I've learned that I give to everybody I talk to is learn from your predecessors. And by that, I mean, there are very few business ideas in the world that have never been tried before. 
truly unique. Almost everything that all of us come up with is in some way been tried before. And in this day and age, when you have access to tools like LinkedIn and the internet, it's fairly easy to discern who your failed predecessors are. Meaning I'm not talking about the companies that you as your current founder are looking at as current competitors. I'm talking about the entities that were perhaps venture funded or privately funded in the died a year or two or three ago that had also tried this idea. And if you can identify those entities, it's very easy via LinkedIn to find out who their execs were and what job they're working in today and to reach out to them and say, hey, I'm actually interested in starting a company in the area you were in several years ago. Could I bend your ear for a few minutes? And you would be shocked, Ray, to learn that I would say 80 to 90% of those outreaches yielded a direct response with a person willing and quite happy to share their journey. And then it's up to me to ask the questions, what did you learn? What would you do differently? If you had to do it again, what would change? And oh, by the way, is there anybody else I should talk to besides you that could give me some advice on how to best navigate this industry? And just those simple questions yielded so many, not only potential failure modes that I had to then explore and overcome, but gave me such insight into what the market I was entering was likely to look like when I got there. And I think we as entrepreneurs sometimes put on our rose-colored glasses too early and they're too thick. And that's a great way to strip them back. And so my advice to founders is not only do that exercise because it's easy and it's free, but if you don't do it, it is at your absolute peril. You're guaranteed if you do not do that, you will run into one of those failure modes that your predecessors hit and you will die on the same sword, <laughs> right? And if you can avoid that, if you can legitimately hear their failure mode and you can in this moment have a legitimate answer to getting out and not dying on that sword, and then you can solve for all the other failure modes that you've uncovered along the way, then your business opportunity, the odds of you succeeding just went up multiples. And without a doubt, that is perhaps the most impactful thing I tell people to do. Court, that's great advice. And what you're also said is you may not reach out to the current CEO when it's a hundred million dollar. You're saying reach out to the early stage founders and executives and find out what they learned in the first 12, 24 or 36 months, right? Indeed. And I'm saying not just those guys, but I'm saying you have people that went into your market that failed, meaning companies that were in your space, you as a founder, that were funded by a different VC a year or two ago, and they've since folded up their tent posts and gone away because they failed to make a market impact, right? I'm saying go find those people. Those people live the hard life. They took all the arrows and, and cuts in advance for you, and they can tell you what went wrong, why they had this great idea. They were just as excited as you were when they started, and now they're dead. That company's long gone. It's been dead and buried for a year or two or more. What did they learn from that? What was in that market with that product, with that customer base, with that set of demands? And how do you apply that to your current scenario to see if the thing you're doing legitimately solves the problems that killed them back in the day? That's the one I'm talking about. Yes, you can talk to people that have, there's already a big successful company in your space, then you're competing against somebody that's already an incumbent. What I'm talking about are the guys that have already died in advance of you. And I did this, it took me nine months to do this process with DocuSign. I literally, from the time Tom and I came up with the idea, I went through nine months of finding predecessor companies that had tried some form 
of a digital signature platform, uh, usually with different tech, but learning from their mistakes before I was able to perfect the model and the business and the construct of that to feel like, yes, this is a fundable business that we can grow and that we can build a long-term success. Corey, that's great advice. So like any entrepreneur, let's pivot and let's pivot back to April 27th, 2018. <laughs> that's the day DocuSign went public. And as we know, it's one of the hottest SaaS and cloud stocks in 2020. Court, what were the emotions you experienced on the day of the IPO? Elation and relief. Because if you do the math, 2018, and I started in 2003, that was 15 years. So the old Rome was not built in a day adage comes to mind. I think I desperately wanted to be on the stage when that bell was rung. Oh my God, I was doing everything I could. In fact, Dan Springer was amazing. But there were so many, after 15 years, you can imagine there were a lot of people, not just me, who wanted to be on the stage. And the current leadership was having a hell of a time picking and choosing who they would let on. So they ended up making a very draconian and perhaps ultimately the right decision where they said, look, the only people we're going to let on the stage are current board members and current executives. That's it. Because there's so many people that had a hand in helping this company grow and so many deserving people that could be on the stage. And yes, Court, of course, you're one of them and we wouldn't be here without you, but we've got to draw the line somewhere. So that part, I wish I'd had the opportunity to experience. But at the end of the day, I could not be more proud. I would say Keith did a great job growing the business. Dan has done a just superb job in this sort of phase three. But at the end of the day, the thing I remain the most proud of as a founder is that A, the business model I created in 2003 is still exactly the same business model that the company uses to generate the vast majority of its revenue. And that's rare. For all of us that have been through many, many startups, business models change constantly. And it's rare that you can really hone one in that sticks all the way through are stuck. And I feel very good about that. But I think above and beyond that, the fact that the culture of the company has remained what I set it up as all those years ago, meaning it's a place that is welcoming, that is demanding in the right ways, but is a place that most of the employees love to work in. It gets routinely written up as best places to work. The people that I know that work there absolutely love it. And at the end of the day, you know, I'm a big fan of old Jim Collins, Built to Last, that book, that old tome. That was perhaps my biggest success is building a company that the culture and the strength of it is a legacy. So I'm very happy about that. Well, congratulations on an amazing story. And I know we in the American capitalistics environment, we celebrate huge wins like that, a public offering and wealth creation for so many shareholders and employees. But I think your decision to say, hey, five years into it, I think that I in the company will be better served by handing over the reins. To me, that's the true celebration of what you've done, Court, is you created something amazing and you also knew when it was time to ask someone help else to help make it even more amazing. Yeah, I'm gonna share one last piece of advice, Ray, that it's not obvious, but a long time ago, I realized that founders' most valuable resource is their time. I mean, as a group, those of us that have the passion and the energy to create things from scratch are a rare breed. And when we 
are brought into action, meaning we allow ourselves to engage and build something unique in the world. There's an interesting timeline effect that occurs in, at least in American companies statistically, and that is that if you run the numbers, you will find that after five years as a founder, you will have achieved roughly 70% of your terminal value if, as if you stayed through the entire rest of the life cycle of the company. Meaning you've got 70% of whatever you will eventually be worth. You've already got 70% of it in the bag at, at year five normally. And so as I looked at that as a career, I realized that since most startups fail statistically, that I would be best served as a career entrepreneur to do five years in, then get out. And then another five years, then get out. And that I would build a portfolio of ventures that some I was imagining that one of them, maybe more, would ultimately be successful. But that's a piece of advice that I also give entrepreneurs is understand that you could stay with your current company until it's bigger, but you're only going to probably get another 20 to 30% of your terminal value by doing that. Whereas if you go start something new, you could accumulate another 70% of another outcome minimally. I'll tell you, Court, on the Metrics That Measure Up podcast, having statistical probability being a factor in deciding when to start your next company, there's not a better way I could end. Thank you so much for being our guest today. My pleasure, Ray. It's so great to talk to you, and I'm glad to have the time today. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics That Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit RevOpsquared.com.